0: As we come to God's Word this evening, I just want to say by way of introduction that I've been meditating for some time, uh, quite a few years actually, on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So that's where we're going to be looking this evening. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd ask you to take your Bibles and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I won't read the chapter quite yet, but let me give, let me first pray and then I'll enter into my official uh, introduction. Uh, So let's pray and ask for God's help this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not so distant that we cannot reach you. You are truly holy and far above us, but you've made a way of access You sent your son into this world. He laid down his life. You raised him from the dead and he now sits at your right hand and his sacrifice, his person makes a way of access for us to you. And so in Jesus' name, we plead that you would grant us grace, that we would be able to benefit from your word, that you would guide and direct me by your spirit to declare only the truth and that your truth would lodge in our hearts change our lives for the glory of your name. Please, Father, show yourself to be the God of all grace this evening, helping your people who are sitting in homes, helping your people who are sitting here with masks, that we might know you blessing us as we sit under your word. We plead this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been hearing a lot about unity in the adult Bible class over uh, the past few months uh, from Pastor Smith, following uh, Owen's lead, and one of the texts that's been in that uh, study is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, "...I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We heard something similar from Colossians chapter 3, where we were told to put on that overcoat of love. Beyond all things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And then in our Uh, CQFS in our uh, coronavirus or COVID quarantine family seminar, we heard from Ephesians chapter 5 that husbands are to love their wives as Christ also loves the church. So this matter of love has been uh, a, a note that has been sounded over the past few months. I want to examine that aspect of our Christian life, that aspect of love that is highlighted for us in a passage like First Corinthians 13. We might understand how it fits and sense how it, what it looks like in that unified uh, environment and in our homes. Now, First Corinthians 13, you know, has to do with the church, and verses chapters 12 to 14 have to do with spiritual gifts. And in the midst of the the teaching on how the body should function in those spiritual gifts, uh, particularly some uh, manifestations for the first century, Paul gives us this uh, chapter in chapter 13 on love and what love, something of what love looks like. And so I want us to look at that and ask ourselves with regard to the body of Christ, am I loving? But also, this chapter is frequently used, and it makes sense that it be used in weddings, and it's spoken of in terms of couples, husbands, and wives, loving one another as it's described in 1 Corinthians 13. So I'll also be speaking to husbands and wives and how we love one another in our families. Now, this sermon is not meant to be exhaustive uh, or exhausting. But but it's rather meant to be suggestive and it's meant to be practical. I want you to be able to take away, as it were, uh, as a, almost a, a checklist, a sheet of paper that that will that you could look at and say, okay, let me ask myself: Am I loving? Is this true of me? Is this true of me? Is this true of me? Am I living this way with the brethren? Am I living this way with my wife? Am I living this way with my husband? Am I living this way in my family? And so I want you to be able to take something like that away. So I want, basically I'm going to give you my uh, applications right up front. I want this study in 1 Corinthians 13 to prod you to self-examination. To take this chapter, which I'm sure most of you have read or heard, and I want you to take it afresh and I want you to take it up and I want you to ask yourself, am I loving, as Paul describes it here. Not just as I think loving ought to look, what it ought to look like and act like, but what does he actually say? And then secondly, I want to enge- encourage you to engage in memorization. If you've never memorized First Corinthians 13, that I would encourage you to do that. That's what I've been uh, seeking to do uh, more intently uh, in, the la- in the last few months. But I want you to be aware, I'm not chiding anyone. I'm not concerned about a lack of love in this congregation. I'm not concerned, in one sense, about a lack of love that's prominent among uh, the various couples and families in the church. I say to you what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. It's very appropriate as I begin this, this study. He said, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God, to love one another for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all I'll change it slightly Montville or New Jersey but we urge you brethren to excel still more now one last note in my introduction before I get to the actual material and that is that most of my examples and illustrations are things I've either personally experienced or I've seen done here at Trinity so when I bring an illustration, it's going to be to seek to it's going to be from things I have seen the the body of Christ doing here. So not things I had to make up in my head. I've I've seen them or I've experienced them personally. So let's look at First Corinthians thirteen. Now if you and since you have your Bibles open there, please follow along as I read this chapter. Paul says he wants to show them a still more excellent way at the end of chapter 12. And then he says, here's that excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy or if there are prophecies, they will be done away. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put away, did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I, have also, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So as we come this evening now to look at this chapter, I want you to note the chapter breaks down really into three simple sections. The first section is verses 1 through 3. And I've entitled it, The Way Love Fits. The Way Love Fits In, or Fits Into a Particular Place, or if you prefer, Love Is essential. And then in verses four through seven, the way love acts, or love is active. And then the third, the way love lasts, or love is enduring, I believe is the final word I decided on after throwing out many, many others. Yes, oh, excuse me, love is unfailing. Yes, love is unfailing. So love is essential. The way love fits. Now, notice with me as we look at verses 1 through 3, and this is going to be relatively brief. Again, I'm going to try to have the exegesis be as simple and as minimal as possible so we can talk about application. Notice with me, first of all, extraordinary acts. He talks about speaking in tongues. He talks about uh, the gifts of prophecy and knowing mysteries and knowledge, the gift of faith These are gifts that are being described described earlier in chapter 12 and again in chapter 14. And these are spiritual, supernatural, spiritual gifts that existed in that first century, in the time of the apostles, that the churches manifested as there was this spreading of the gospel and they manifested that the gospel had gone to new and wider circles. Things which now no longer are needed by the church, now which no longer exist in the church, but were there at that time. And these were manifest in the church in Corinth, in abundance in the church in Corinth. Then notice with me as well in the third verse, these uh, sacrificial practice, these sacrificial practical acts. He says, if I give all my possessions away, give them to be consumed to be used by others or even if i give my own body to be burned these are this is another this is incredible exceptional extraordinary acts supernatural spiritual gifts and sacrificial practical acts But then I want to note, secondly, what I want to just just see here is the essential ingredient. In the midst of all of these extraordinary acts, there's an essential ingredient. And that essential ingredient is love. Now, we need a definition of love, right? Because it's bandied around and and, uh, misunderstood in so many different ways. It's the quality of warm regard for and interest in another. Synonyms are things like esteem, affection, regard. It can be any kind of relationship. It can be friends on a, on a sports team. It can manifest love. It can be the intimate relationship between a man and a woman. It can be a relationship between members of a church. But to love someone, to someone is to find delight in them in some measure, in some way. To delight in them. But now let me just say that with that brief definition of this this warm regard or interest in another, with this delight and pleasure in another, Paul is not speaking about just some human virtue. He's not describing here that which is just common among mankind. He's speaking about love in its fullest and most extensive meaning in its biblical meaning, in its Christian meaning. So he's talking about love, and he means true love to God and man. It's the benevolent disposition, as Matthew Henry says, of mind towards our fellow Christians, growing out of sincere and fervent devotion to God. This love that Paul talks about, that I'm setting before you and asking you to check your hearts over and check your own lives over, this love is love for God and man. It is love for man that grows out of a love for God. We know that we love God when we love the children of God. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then growing out of that, the second commandment, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we're talking about Christian love. Love born out of a devotion to God. Love which is worked in the heart by the spirit of God. Love which is... Manifested or or displayed or imitated in that which we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the definition is. But then it's importance. It's essential role here. Notice what I read in those first three verses when he talked about these amazing gifts that were being used. And he says, but if I do not have love... I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I use these amazing gifts but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I make these incredible sacrificial gifts, even of myself, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. without love, all of our words, even if they're spoken in tongues of men and of angels in supernatural languages or supernatural way, languages I didn't know, if I speak them with fluency, if I speak them in the church, even if I speak them with interpretation and have not love, I'm just... A bunch of noise. I am just a noisy gong. Whether it's the instruction a parent is giving to a child in the way or in family worship, or it's a man standing in his pulpit, or a teacher standing in a Sunday school class. I'm just an annoying, unintelligible noise if I do not have love. And if we do all these wonderful things and manifest these spiritual gifts of knowing prophecies and theological truths that others don't know and a, and a, and a knowledge which is supernatural about the future maybe or, or things that I couldn't otherwise know except by the work of the Spirit or even if I have faith to actually say, mountain, get up and be moved... Pike's Peak, set yourself down there in high point and show them what a mountain looks like. And even if I had the power to exercise that kind of faith, but did not have love. These words haunt me. I am nothing. And if I make these great sacrifices but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And one man said the totality of the gift that the person is giving is contrasted with the nothingness. It profits me nothing. And presumably, it profits me nothing before God. You know, there's some other words that haunt me. They're the words that Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if you pray and you do all your righteousness before men, you have your Reward. You know what that means? If you do these things and do all these marvelous things, and these sacrificial acts, and you do them for any other reason than the love for God and love for mankind, if you're just doing it to get glory to yourself or you're doing it for any other reason, if you do not have love, you have the reward of this. No, there's your reward. After that's done, nothing you see how Paul really highlights at the very outset of this how essential how essential love is all these acts they seem so important in the church but if they're not done in love they're nothing there's the way love fits love is essential that brings me to my second point the way love acts love is active versus four to seven And I say love is active because we read this and it sounds like uh, predicate nominatives or predicate adjectives and there's no adjectives here, they're all verbs. In the Greek, they're all verbs. Love kinds, but that doesn't make much sense in English so they have to kind of reword it. Love is kind or does good. So what I've done is I've broken this up into three groups. One group of two, one group of eight, and one group of four. So the first is two essential qualities of true love. Know what it says here in verse 4. Love is patient and love is kind. Now, in the Greek, it's obvious that there's, a, there's, a, there's some transition going on here because he puts the word love in. Right? And it appears once. Love is patient and is kind is really the way it's written in the Greek. So love is patient and kind. Then, love is not jealous, does not brag, and so that's where you have it coming back in. And so that he uses this word love to kind of break things up. So here's two essential qualities, patience and kindness. So here's where we start getting down to asking ourselves some questions, patience and kindness. Now, patience. Do I really need to tell you what patience is? Well, if I give you all the definitions I have, then you will have to exercise it. One man said it this way, though. He said it very well. He said, love performs the positive act of waiting. 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 Patience can be exercised in anything of just sitting and waiting for dinner to be served. Waiting for the bus to arrive. Or having to bear up under some difficulty and struggle and not give in to anger. Now, I say that because in the Septuagint, this word macrothumia macrothymia this this greek word is used in the greek version of the old testament to translate those words slow to anger and over and over again it's used for that phrase slow to anger and so this patience is a patience which is provoked love is patient even when anger should be expressed it's used in Exodus 34 in that description of God, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. The Greek said, Makrothumia, patient. If you ever want to just imagine what patience really looks like, think about how God has not put you in hell right now. Yet how often you've sinned against Him, violated His law, and you're not in hell. You're not under His wrath. That's patience. Love puts restraint on getting angry. We'll come back to this. It restrains the expression of anger. Love waits. Love suffers long. We need such patience. How patient are you? I'm the most patient person in the world. Five minutes before I wake up in the morning. And as soon as I get up, my patience suddenly and e- easily vanishes. Because the alarm clock just did something I don't want. And now I've got to wait for the coffee pot to finish brewing. And then I've got to wait. And, and I, I'm, we're waiting. We're always waiting. How patient are you with the brethren you have to wait for? When you have to wait for that slow walking, Brother or sister to go down the stairs and, and you're trying to get out because you, you saw your child dash around the corner or you've got that meal that's in and you and, okay, patience. We're going to be patient. Do you let brethren finish their questions or comments before you start speaking? Are you patient enough to listen to their comments and seek to understand them? Maybe it's a brother or sister who's younger in the faith than you are and, and maybe has some difficulty in trying to express himself or herself. And so they start talking and, and they're talking and they're going around in circles and, and you're trying to grasp something, man. You're saying, I, I know what I need to say to this brother or this sister and I want to say it. Are you patient enough to let them finish their sentences and finish their paragraphs and finish their monologue before you then step in to speak? You take time to listen and patiently instruct that, brother, that you've had to help with something over and over and over again. When I visited Trinity Baptist Church, and I'll tell on myself as an example here, because I was not the person, I was when the person was trying somebody's patience. I was brought to somebody's home and I was made comfortable in their home and I was a young buck that thought I knew everything about theology and so I spouted off all kinds of things that later I just, I I marvel that they didn't kick me out of their home. But they didn't. They didn't even rebuke me. They listened. They loved. They understood. And they were extremely patient with me and my friend. Parents, are you patient with your children? Listening to your children? Sometimes takes a while for them to get out everything that's on their heart. Do you listen to their questions when they come to you with their questions? And so that you know what they're actually, do you you listen? You see, one of the reasons why sometimes we don't listen like we should is because we don't love like we ought. And they come in. They want to tell you that little story about that bug that they found or that frog that they had. And, and they want to go on and on. And it's like, oh, yeah, I heard this. Okay, oh, yeah. yeah. And you, yeah are you, but are you just saying, man, I've got to get off. I've got things to do. I've got, are you patient? Patient in training up that child in the way they should go, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, patiently going back over the same ground As my dad used to say, if I've told you once, have I not told you a thousand times? Were you born in a barn? If you were, the cows are gone. Close the door! This was the patience. We need patience, brethren. We need love. Love is patient. And what is that, really? Love that is patient is really the gift of time. I'm willing to give you something of a non-renewable resource that I can't ever get back, but I'm going to give it to you. That's what patience is. Now, I know, I don't want anybody to go away with false guilt. We've all got priorities. They're all things we have to do. I know that. We have to make those decisions, but I'm talking about love that is patient. But then he goes on and says, love is kind. Very general word again, not difficult to understand. It's just doing good to somebody. It's being benevolent to somebody. Are you kind to those who are around you? Are you known as that person who that person is just kind? You know, if I I know that if I meet them, I'm gonna I'm gonna come away feeling better about myself because they're gonna either say something that's gonna be pleasant and helpful or they're going to give me something. They're just the people that are kind. Are you kind, brethren? Are you manifesting love and kindness? Kindness that shows itself in physical ways. Caring for somebody who is ill or has an injury. Caring for aged parents in your home. Helping someone to lose weight or get on an exercise program or helping them get to their exercise. Helping somebody move. I mean, how many times I've seen that over the years where somebody moves and... Man, the the team that comes in and and, and and they out of the kindness of their heart move people around, picking people up at the airport. There's any number of physical ways we manifest love by being kind or materially, giving money, giving property, cars, baby clothes. I think we finally got all 20 bags out of our attic of baby clothes. Hey, we got some more. That's wanting to help, give anything, making meals, providing food for the hungry, cold water for the thirsty. Materially providing for people. It's been such a joy as a pastor to hear the church acting like church. When I hear about brethren who have a need, and before I can even before the deacons at times even been able to say, Yeah, we've got that, somebody says, Hey, you know what? I want to help with that. Can I take care of that one? Can I help that brother with this, this sister with that? You know, I've got a little extra cash over. Can we can we give that? or doing good to someone spiritually. Dr. DeLisi said uh, of his mother and caring for his mother over the last few months, he said when they could no longer really do anything for her physical body, they continued to minister to her spiritually. A kind word spoken to somebody who's down. A written card that comes to, to a discouraged, downcast, depressed, or disappointed person. Comforting someone who is grieving. Extending forgiveness to someone who's asked for forgiveness. This is one of the places, this word is used in some of the apocryphal writings, but it talks about kindness being shown when somebody actually forgives you. That's kindness. You've asked, you've you've blown it, you've sinned against them, you come and ask for forgiveness, and a kind thing to do is say, I forgive you. The unkind thing is that, well, you you prove it and then maybe I'll say something to you. Or we'll think about that. The kind thing is the person who's saying, I've been waiting for you to come. I couldn't wait to tell you. Forgiven. It's gone. I've dealt with it. That's kindness. Brethren, evangelizing is one of the greatest kindnesses we can show to a lost world. Ministering to their spiritual need. Telling them of their great the, the answer to those great needs of death and judgment. Oh, Brother, I think I could probably stop right there and give us a lot to chew on just to stop and think about. How kind have I been? How could I be more kind? Oh, yes, it's shown in the flowers you give. It's shown in the little gifts that you give. But how could I actually manifest myself as a, a kinder individual and actually do that because God in Christ has been so kind to me? God's tender mercies are over all His works and He's done all these things for me and constantly giving me good gifts. How much deeper would our relationships and bonds be as a body of Christ if we were just these two things more? More patient and more kind. How many marriages would be altered and be better and richer and deeper if we took more time to be more patient with one another and more kind toward one another? Thinking of the other as more important than ourselves. How much more joyful would our homes be if we were more kind to one another, if we were more patient with one another? Well, that's the first category, two essential qualities of true love. Now, eight sinful qualities that are inconsistent with love, with true love. Eight sinful qualities that are inconsistent with love. Now, we can do it in eight points, or we can group them together. I'm going to kind of do a little bit of both. Because there are five qualities that are inconsistent, first of all, that are all tied together around one little word, Me. Me is often inconsistent with love. Because me is jealous. Me wants to think that I deserve better and what that brother or that sister has is something I deserve more than they deserve it. Why did they get that position? Why did they get that promotion? Why did they get that benefit? Rachel looks at Leah and she's jealous. I want, gir- I want children. Joseph's brother's Hear Joseph's dream about him being ruler and them bowing down to him. They don't gonna bow down to him. They deserve to be bowed down to. Why is he the special one? I deserve to be the special one. Jealous. Me, me, I deserve better. I deserve more. I deserve what those, those brethren have the position they have, the responsibilities they have, the privileges that they have. But you see, jealousy is completely inconsistent with love. Because love is kind. And love's thinking about the other person all the time and wanting to do good to them. And if I'm seeking to do good to them, what does me get out of it? Nada. I don't want anything out of it. That's what love says. How can I be jealous of someone else or someone else, what somebody else has, when my basic disposition is kindness that I'm going to rejoice with those who rejoice? We're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We're to give preference to one another in honor. We're to do all that we can to see that our brethren get the praise and our brethren get, get noted and seen. You see, love will never be jealous of another man's wife or another woman's husband. Because they'll be delighting in what God has given that brother or that sister. They'll be rejoicing with them. Jealousy, the jealous one that has, has jealous of the woman who has children when one doesn't. That's not loving. That's inconsistent with being loving. Loving is saying, I'm so thankful God's given them these children. You see, jealousy comes up so often. And pastors aren't immune to this. Prophets weren't immune to this. To have a bigger ministry, to have more influence, to have more opportunities. One of the ministerial sermons I heard in the academy it was most potent to me was a man who stood up and he preached on ministerial envy and he was one of these guys that had just a golden voice it was smooth as silk and his outline was clear and straightforward and he had illustrations and and he and I tell you he just started his introduction and I was already envious and then, as he opened up ministerial envy, he showed me my heart, and I got really—I saw the ugliness of it. And he pointed me to Christ, and I looked to Christ and said, "Thank you, God, for forgiving me of this sin. Please cleanse me of it, and make me." And I was able to get up after he preached that message, and I thanked him for it, and I thanked him for the way God used him to deal with my own heart. And then I met Pastor Martin at the door, and he said, "Bart, wasn't that good?" And he said, "Go have Harry make a, about a dozen copies of that. I want to send it to everyone else." And Satan saying, "Uh huh. You really? Is it dead?" Oh man, this stuff. It just doesn't die easy. You see, brethren, envy and jealousy, they manifest themselves. We get jealous over people's gifts. We get jealous over people's we can be jealous of just about anything. Because we're discontent with what God has given us. But love is not jealous. Because love is rejoicing in others and love is content. Another me, love does not brag. This word emphasizes the heaping up of words. There's Been a lot of blowing up of balloons around here lately, and you know when you blow up those balloons, then you and then you take and you hold the end and you and you let it out. Really, it goes brr, brr, makes that really nasty noise and goes. And you, okay, that's what this guy's voice is like. It's a and it's it's just heaping up. All he wants to do is talk about himself. That's what, that's what bragging is. He just wants to talk about himself. He just constantly wants to bring himself up, let everybody know how wonderful he is, all the things that he has to say on this particular subject. You know, I've been on every internet site that's out there on this particular point, and let me tell you exactly what we ought to believe on this. Vainglorious, heaping up praises to himself. One, one translation said he's a windbag. That's a great picture. <laughs> Nothing but wind. <sighs> how am I loving someone else if I'm constantly only talking about myself? How am I loving somebody else if I'm not using my words to build up another? Do I spend more time in conversation talking about myself and my experiences, or do I spend more time getting to know others? I know a pastor friend who's got the gift of interrogation. That is, you sit down to talk with him and you never find anything else out about him because he's always got questions and he's learning everything there is about you. He knows how many children you have. He knows how old they are. He knows when you got married. He knows all about your ministry. He knows all about your... Because he, he, he just wants to know. Not bragging. And then Arrogance. Another lovely graphic word, it's called being puffed up. So you got a windbag on one side. I guess what he does is he just kind of builds the head up and then goes when all comes out of his mouth. This is the picture of this 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 person who's not loving. This is inconsistent with with being loving, being jealous, bragging, being puffed up. So you see, love goes deeper than just the words, it looks into the heart. Love does not look at oneself and think highly of oneself or more highly than he ought to. This, this word is used in Colossians 2.18 and it talks about having an inflated mind. Taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. He's just pumping himself up. He's just making himself big. Thinking highly, highly of himself. And you see, this is what caused a lot of the divisions in the church in Corinth, is people thinking too highly of their gifts, thinking too highly of themselves. Their choice of preacher made them the judge of what a good preacher was. Their choice of how to to act in a particular situation made them the ones. So they were the arrogant ones. They were the puffed up ones. And they were just, this was a big problem in Corinth. Their knowledge puffed them up. Their gifts puffed them up. But what do you have that you have not received? Every good gift comes down from the Father of Lights. It's all comes from God. It's given by God. So it's not just a problem of our words, it's a problem of our heart. And an arrogant, puffed-up view of ourselves, even in our own estimation, will hinder and undermine true love. Do you see your weaknesses and are you honest about them? Do you see your limitations and do you know them and, and live within them and seek to deal with them? Maybe you think, well, I've just got to be the best public prayer of Trinity Baptist Church. My prayers always have at least three verses, always have at least four points. I go from point A to point B to point C to point D and I say amen and I'm done and I sit down. And the pastors always come up and thank me for praying. We get this high view of ourselves that somehow we're something special. My knowledge of Scripture compared to everyone else is is just above them. and So I'm always looking down around at everybody else. Boy, my my ability to train my family is really the the best way to train a family. I remember a pastor saying, You all got to homeschool because if you don't homeschool, your kids will go to hell. But if you homeschool, they'll all get to heaven. He died in prison. I don't know where his children are. You no, know, brethren, we, we need to have the, the self-assessment so we're not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, but thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. We can even be proud about how humble we are, how generous we are, how loving we are. May God help us, especially this is a difficult, for, difficult situation for people who are involved in apologetics. It's all about tearing down the other guy's argument. And I can destroy and dismantle anybody's perspective. But if I have not love, I am just annoying, unintelligible noise. But then, another sin that manifests me is does not act unbecomingly. We've all heard that if you've been around here. Outside of the scheme of things. Ah, oh, eh, oh, right? Outside of the scheme of things. Yes, well, that's what it means, but it actually just means to act disgracefully. Just, just, to, just to make a, a buffoon of yourself in public. You know, th- this, it's not loving to make your wife look bad in public. That's unbecoming. It's not becoming to embarrass your children in front of others just because you don't want to be embarrassed by their behavior. Now, I'm not talking about... Not dealing with sin. I, you deal with your sin with your children. You be faithful to them. And if you have to do that in public, sometimes that has to happen. But I'm talking about may, pointing out their weaknesses, pointing out their their defects, laughing at their noses, laughing at their ears. You see, love does not disgrace itself by placing, by by minimizing or, or by by what's what I would say embarrassing others. Love will keep a man from disgracing his wife when she's got a, a tear in her hose and he's not going to say, hey, hon, a runway down there? No, he's going to pull her aside and say, honey, let's, you know what, let's, let's go ahead and take care of that. He's going to be kind and he's going to try to minimize the uh, embarrassment that she might feel. Embarrassment that our children might feel in the way that we deal with them. Or speaking in an unbecoming way, a disgraceful manner. Or just talking like you're an adult when you're, you're just a child, you know? Children walk into an ascent of adults and they start talking like they're just one of everybody. Oh, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need to recognize our rank. You know, our society's lost that. It, 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 it really, it, it's difficult for me. When I used to go to work, anybody above me, especially manager above, was Mr. or Mrs. And if it was the CEO, I didn't even look at him, you know? So if, he, if he speaks, then I'll say something. Now, okay, maybe that was just something of me, but the fact that we've lost some of this. Children calling peop- adults by their first name. You see, that's, that's out of the scheme. It's not recognizing the order. Or me, as an older man, speaking to a young woman in an improper way, even though it may not be in any way disgraceful, sinful what I'm talking about, but not recognizing the scheme of things. She's a young woman and I'm a man. But love doesn't do that. Love sees these things and recognizes them. Does not let any unwholesome word proceed from its mouth. I hasten on. Love does not seek its own. Look at that and say, love does not seek its own. What does that mean? Oh, that's, that's it's pretty obvious. You don't put up one commentary, selfish. Right? Love is not selfish. All right, this comes back to something of a me. Right? Again, it's all about me and what I can have. But interesting, this word is used most often when talking about Christian liberty. You see, love does not parade its Christian liberty before everybody else. It does not put its likes and desires above the others. There's a lot of you I'd love to hug, but I won't do it in public. Because it's not seemly. It's not right. It would be selfish for me to do that. It would be wrong for me to do that. Well, it's my liberty. No, it's not. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 24. This comes out in 1st Corinthians 10 33 as well just as I also please all men in all things not seeking my own profit but the profit of many that they may be saved who's the best example of this not seeking his own things the one who came to his own things and his own did not receive him he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many that's that's the picture of what love looks like. It does not seek its own things and it's not selfish. Do you think of others before you think of yourself? I just I just love to see the brethren jumping in, grabbing chairs, putting things away, bringing chairs back in. What can I do to wash not thinking of themselves and all the places they'd rather be and the things they'd rather do but seeking to serve the brethren? Five expressions of pride. They said in all the expressions of pride, but basically I think what Paul is saying is that pride in every form is inconsistent with true love, with Christian love. When we are more concerned about our reputation, our position, our things, than the one we say we love, we are in fact unloving. Now you want to get more of this go get Jonathan Edwards' charity and its fruits. And he goes at length in every one of these areas in a very helpful way. It brings me to my second group of, of the sins, the things which are inconsistent, and that's three. We looked at five about pride, five about me, and these are three about how to respond to sin. It's very interesting that love in this chapter is painted in many different ways as facing Offenses. We think of manifesting love when there's all sweetness and flowers and and beauty around us. That's when we want to manifest love. But Paul says, you know, you've got to manifest love when everything's really bad. When you have to be patient. when When other people are getting things you think you would like to have. When you're being attacked. When there's sin around you. That's what he's going to address here next. He says, love is not provoked. Now, the word provoked can be a positive thing. Paul was provoked in his spirit when he saw all the idols in in Athens. And that was a positive thing because he was provoked to do good. But this is a provocation that leads to anger, that leads to irritation, exasperation. The ESV says is not irritable. Love is not irritable. Love is not, you know, waking up, ten, waking up an hour before you wanting to and not being able to get to sleep and then having to go about the day going, I need an extra hour of sleep. Don't talk to me. Love is not being a porcupine. Right, love is the opposite of that. Being this irritable thing. It says it's not irritable. King, the King James or Authorized Version says it's not easily provoked. Basically, it's talking about an angry spirit. Love and anger, carnal anger, don't fit. One who is easily provoked or quickly provoked to anger, one who has a short fuse, is not acting in a loving way. One who manifests his anger in harsh, censorious, vicious anger, using names, calling names. I hope I don't have to say using foul language. That person's not loving. The angry spirit that's being spoken of here, one that is angry when there's no cause to be angry. Now, Jesus was angry. But you know what? When he made a scourge of thorns, of whip, and, and went into the to drive out the animals, it never says that he used the whip on any person. It never says he touched a single person. He turned over the tables. And he did it in his Father's house. This is very different than what we see going on in many of our lives and in our country today. So brethren, love says, I'm not going to be irritable. I'm going to be easy to get along with. I'm going to be slow to anger. Love manifests itself in self-control and gentleness. It's able to control it. There's been an offense, there's sin, it has to be dealt with. But am I going to be irritable and am I going to get blow up at this or am I going to say, no, no, no. Go to your room and I will be right there to talk to you. Sit down right here and we are going to discuss this. It manifests anger, but it manifests it in the right way. Jesus looked around on the people with anger. It was all over his face. He spoke some pretty harsh words, woe unto you scribes, hypocrites, and Pharisees, but it was never out of control. Parents, when dealing with your children's sin, love must fill your heart and govern your actions. Restrain them so anger is expressed carefully and righteously. Parents working with clumsy children, It isn't necessarily sinful to spill a glass of milk. If it were, I'd be one of the most sinful kids you ever saw. I used to fall out of everything. I used to knock over everything. I was just clumsy. That's just what I was. Now, maybe there was some carelessness in there. So you've got to learn to help the child to distinguish between what's careless and okay, so you're a little clumsy at this stage in life and you're just a little gangly. Okay, well you gotta you gotta learn to take a little more time to think about what you're doing. But you don't treat them like they're they're out there just trying to make a mess of your kitchen or your dining room. Husbands and wives, is your marriage characterized by sharp, harsh words? Is there fighting and arguing? Or is there controlled, even earnest discussions? Sometimes earnest, but they're still discussions. They're managed. They're done properly, wisely. Are you quick to confess? Are you as quick to confess as you are to explode? Are you as quick to forgive as you were to chide? Does not take an account of wrongs or does not think wrong things or wrong thoughts. It's a logic term. It's an accounting term. You're going to reason things through and then you're going to keep it a record of it. See, the loving person doesn't even think evil of others. He doesn't think it's evil. I'll tell you one of my mottos in life. I know I'm naive, all right? I'll just tell you right up front, but one of my mottos in life, I live like everybody likes me until they tell me different. I live a very happy life. Why should I go around thinking everybody hates me? Well, they ought to, because if they really knew me, you shouldn't like me at all. I mean, I'm a pretty sinful person in here. But the fact of the matter is, you know what? I don't go around thinking, oh, that person just snubbed me. I don't even notice it. Or I think, oh, they're in a hurry like I am. I don't go around thinking everybody's got it, got it in for me and really upset with me and angry with me. So, no, if they are, come tell me. Now, if I see something, that you know, I'll go talk to them. Try to bring those things out. But the fact of the matter is I don't live at this record. I've got to keep track of what everybody's done against me so that I'm constantly seeing, here's the big list. I love these scorecards. You know, we, we play softball. And I love what... Uh, what uh, Mr. Johnson has taught his daughter to do to keep score of these things. You know, you can, there's all kinds of information you can put on that little bitty box. Ball went here, they went there, this person went around here, and you can put it all in, and they scored, and you got all this. It's amazing what you can put on that scorecard. At the end of the game, you could basically rebuild the entire season, their entire game, from that scorecard. Don't do that with sin. Don't keep a scorecard. Oh, you did this. All right, you went around there. Oh, see? I'm, I kept track. Well, I did it. You did it four times last, last inning. <laughs> you, you fouled out every time you got up to bat. I saw it. Don't do that. Don't keep a record of wrongs. Yes, we remember these things. Sometimes we see patterns to help people deal with sin. That's different. I'm not building offenses. I'm not building up an, a record against them. I'm just saying, I hear something happen a second time, I hear it happen a third time, and I hear, you know what? I think there's a pattern here. Let's see if we can't figure out what's causing this pattern. That's different than keeping a record of wrongs. Say, okay, you did this, you did it again, you did it again, you did it again. Love doesn't compound the offenses. Love is not judgmental and nitpicky, going around finding things to be angry at people with. As though somehow if I, keep track of all, if I don't keep track of all their sins, somebody's going to get away with something. Wait a minute, there's another chapter about love. It's, John, it's Romans chapter 12, and you know that chapter ends this way. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's loving. To leave those sins, say, Lord, you'll deal with that. I don't need to keep track of it. And then does not rejoice in unrighteousness or rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices when justice is served, when truth wins out over error. I think the the picture here is one of of a bigger category in the sense that love, always true love, love to God and love to man always ultimately desires and loves best that which is most like God and most in keeping with truth. And anything that's unrighteous or out of step with God, I'm not going to rejoice in that or find any delight in that. I'm not going to focus on that. I want to see what is right come to pass. Love rejects sin and promotes truth. Edwards says this verse is actually something of a summary he says it this way. As if, he writes, writing of Paul, he says, as if Paul said, I have mentioned many excellent things that charity, that is love, has a tendency to and shown how it is contrary to many evil things but i need to go on i do not need to go on to multiply particulars for in a word love or charity is contrary to everything in the life and practice that is evil and tends to everything that is good or as paul put it let love be without hypocrisy abhor what is evil and cling to what is good do not be overcome with evil but overcome evil with good And now my time is all gone. But there's one last verse I want us to look at, and I'll just read it and just make some brief comments. He says in verse 7, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is all about all things. As one man said, this is about the limits of love. The limits of love. These are the four things that I said at the end. I had two, eight, and four. Here's the four, but it has to do with all things. All things means whatever comes. Whatever God in his providence brings my way, whether it's an offense from a brother, whether it's a trial, whether it's a difficulty, whether it's blessing, whatever it might be, whatever comes... Love will not have any limits. It will bear up under whatever needs to be born. It will cover whatever needs to be covered. It will not collapse. It will not allow sin to enter in. It believes all things to be true. That is, it's not gullible, but it thinks the best of others. It puts the best construction on things. I'll skip over my quote from Calvin where he said it very, very well, but basically he said, a Christian would rather be defrauded than have an evil suspicion of a brother. Holds on in faith to God regardless of how difficult things go. You know, circumstances sometimes make it think thing like God's really not there and his promises really aren't true. But you see, love believes all things. I love that God and I know him to be true. I'm going to believe every word that he has said. And hope's all things. Oh, I love this word, hope. We need hope, brethren. However difficult somebody might be. For love, there are no hopeless cases. Love doesn't give up. Because love hopes all things it thinks the best it desires the best it works for the best and that it endures all things it perseveres to the end it perseveres to the end it will not give up parents of wayward children love will not give up I've seen some of you persevere in prayer persevere in hope The wife, who is wiser than her educated husband, will endure a lot of mistakes and submit to him because she hopes and endures all things. Basically, this verse, as one man put it, is that love has no limits. He summarized it this way. Love never tires of support never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. Or to put it in Paul's words, he introduces this whole last section, love never fails. So brethren, how are we in our loving? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love the brethren as we're called to do? Love the brotherhood do you love your wife in this way? Husbands who are, who are supposed to love their wives? Do we love our children like a father who delights in his son? Do we love our neighbor as ourself? Who's my neighbor? Go ask Jesus, Luke chapter 10. But even more, we're even supposed to love our enemies. And I don't think these characteristics we've seen here are only for God's people. To show to God's people. It's for God's people to show even to our enemies. But, in closing, why do we find it so hard to love? Why is it that some people just can't do this? Because they don't have what it takes. Men are hateful and hate one another, the Bible tells us. How can such men, women, boys, and girls who are hateful hate one another and hate God ever be so loving? You see, the only one way. We love because he first loved us. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his only begotten son for us to be a propitiation for our sins. You see, we can only love this way because this is the way God loves us. This is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. How patient he has been, how kind, never jealous, never bragging or arrogant, never doing anything out of the scheme or unbecomingly, never seeking his own, not easily provoked, not keeping an account of wrongs, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices when the truth bears fruit. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. He never fails. God and Christ is love. Brethren, this is a picture of our Savior. And if you don't know the Savior, it's no wonder you can't love like this because you've never experienced love like this. Go to the Savior today. Confess your sins and find him quick and ready and fully to forgive all your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and make you one of his children and shower you with blessings. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for our many, many unloving acts, words, and thoughts. And please help us to be more loving. Use your word to guide and direct our steps. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.